It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for the hearty welcome. There's apparently some people that are scared to sit down here. There's some openings over here. If you want to scoot up next time, you're welcome to come on up. My name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, so glad that you're here. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 4, second half there. I didn't get the page number. I should. I got to get in the habit of doing that. I haven't gotten the habit of doing that yet. So uh, there's a few Bibles in front of you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home. That's our gift to you. So just take it home and spend time in reading it. Uh, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be taking a look uh, at Jesus, as, as Nick said, in particular, who Jesus is. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you for his word. We thank you that he is king, and we are not. He is a good king that uses his authority for good. May we submit all of ourselves to all of him, we pray. In his name, amen. Who is Jesus? Simple, straightforward question. Here you are at a church service, right? Who is Jesus? Imagine watch, walking into your coworker's office, and just as you walk into the office, they, uh, they've received some devastating news. They put the phone down. They look up at you, and they ask you that question. They know instinctively, in light of the difficult news they just received, they ask you, who is Jesus? They're trying to make sense of what happened with the person of Jesus. And so what would you say? Who's Jesus? Who do you believe him to be? He undeniably changed the world, and so this person is making that connection. So most everyone has some kind of an answer. So who is Jesus? Well, the Jehovah Witnesses would say that Jesus is, the, is Michael the Archangel. Uh, the Mormons believe that Jesus is the first spirit child of the Father that performed good enough to become God. Uh, is the half-brother of Satan. Christian scientists believe that Jesus was not a God, but instead was a man that illustrated the consciousness of the divine. The kind of progressive Jesus believed that Jesus is one way to God among many. He only wants you to be sincere about whatever it is you believe. Prosperity gospel teachers believe Jesus died and rose again so as to empower you to reach your full potential. Uh, so he will make you healthy, wealthy, and uh, wise. Judaism believes that Jesus only to be a prophet uh, that is a dead prophet likened to Isaiah or Jeremiah or the like. Muslims likewise believe Jesus only to be a prophet who was never crucified or resurrected. Eastern thinkers believe Jesus to be a dead former teacher. Hindus uh, are happy to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. And so there he is, the co-workers looking at you, asking you this question, who is Jesus? What do you believe him to be? He's waiting. How will you respond? Reality is, Jesus can't be all of these things, nor can he either be two or three of them, since they all contradict one another. So he has to be one of these, or maybe another one that we're going to present this morning from the book of Luke. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to answer that question as clearly. I, I think if I was in that scenario, and the coworker asked me the question, I think I might take him to this passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And read to him, and then share with him or her, who Jesus is. Now, before we read the passage, let me just again set the context for us. Uh, Luke is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Later, he's writing this gospel to this guy by the name of Theophilus, lover of God. And he's trying to help him have certainty regarding the things that he has been taught about Jesus. And so that shows us that Christianity, friends, is not just some sort of easy believism, nor is it this kind of thing that espouses uh, blind faith. So, Christianity very much teaches, let's put it all on the table, let's ask questions about it, let's evaluate the claims of Christ. And clearly what Luke is doing, as we've seen here in the early part, what he's doing is he's presenting Jesus as the greater Israel. This kind of recapitulation, as it were, of the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling all of this. Jesus, we have seen, is the son of Abraham. He, as it were, comes out of Egypt through those kind of baptismal waters of the Red Sea. Right? He comes through baptism. And he's led into the wilderness. We saw that last week, just as the Israelites were led in the wilderness. And in every case, what Luke is having us to see is that Jesus has been found faithful in all of these circumstances. Unlike Israel, that was counted unfaithful. Jesus is the faithful one. And so we are reminded, what happens to Jesus or what happens to Israel when they come out of the wilderness? Where, what happened to the Israelites? Do you remember, those of you that know? Well, they came into the land, right? They came out of the wilderness, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, into the land. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. We see in Luke 4.14, Jesus returned and the power of the Spirit 
to Galilee. Now, what would we expect Jesus to do? What might Luke do if we are familiar with the Old Testament? He comes out, Israelites come out of the wilderness into the land. What would they do? Well, that would map us on to Joshua chapter 1. That's when Joshua is coming into the land. And what does God tell Joshua? He says, he tells Joshua in Joshua 1, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. You shall not go to the right or to the left, but you shall do according to all that it says. And in all your ways, you will prosper. Of course, if you're familiar with that book, you know that by the end of the book of Joshua, that's not what's happening. They're following other gods. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to obey the word. But Joshua uh, comes in, the Israelites come in, and they don't preach the word. They don't teach the word. They don't obey the word. And so what would we expect of Jesus? Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He comes into the land. And we would expect him then to teach the word, to preach the word, to obey the word. And friends, that's exactly what we find him doing. Jesus is the recapitulation of the story of Israel. If you want to understand the Old Testament, watch Jesus. Luke chapter 4. He is the greater Israel. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel, Israel that comes in to preach. Luke 4, 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding com- country. And He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Let's stop there for a moment. Note, note the presence of the Spirit there again. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the anointed king coming into the land. He's empowered. He's emboldened to preach the good news, as we will see. He's out of the wilderness, into the land of Galilee. And remember, Galilee is a kind of normally Think of it like a county in the northern region of Israel. And we find that Jesus has gone viral. Like people know who he is all through the surrounding country. They've heard about him. My guess is they've heard about what John the baptizer, the one we haven't heard from God for some 400 years. A prophet comes up named John. He says that Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Those kinds of things are traveling around the region. And so no surprise, as Jesus comes out of the wilderness into the land, what does he do but go to church? exactly what we see him doing. He goes to the synagogue, as it were, there in Galilee, teaching the word. Just as Joshua of old was supposed to do, to teach the word, to minister the word. And don't miss those last four words of verse 15. Did you notice them? He was being glorified by all. Really important to pull that out, right? Slide back to verse 6 of chapter 4. Look back at chapter 4, verse 6. What did Satan tempt Jesus with in verse 6? Do you see it? Satan said, worship me and I'll give you the glory of the people. Jesus said, no, he was faithful to the word. Then he goes into the land and teaches the word. And what does he get? Glory from the people. Glory from the people. Friends, don't believe the deceiver's lies that his way is the only way to get what you want. Anyway, Luke moves into the story, into one of those teachings. It says that he's teaching in all the synagogues. It goes into one of those stories into the synagogue. And he shares with us in Luke chapter 4 how he goes into this particular synagogue, a synagogue, by the way, that would have been very familiar to him, a synagogue that he would have uh, gathered in his entire life. He goes to the synagogue of Nazareth, the place that he grew up. Look what it says there in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now stop there just for a moment. It was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so, friends, if it was Jesus' custom and we love Jesus and we've been changed by Jesus, it should be our custom as well to go to the synagogue. That is, to go to the gathering of God's people, attending the gathering of the saints to hear, to sing the praying of the word, to hear the teaching of the word. That has to be something. If it was customary of Jesus and we say we love Jesus, that has to be customary of us as well, to gather, to go and see it, not just when we feel like it, Uh, not just when we're in town and we have nothing else to do, but it must be our custom to go and to hear the word, to teach the word, because we have been changed by Jesus. Not because we have to. We don't come to church because we have to. There's a sense in which I sort of have to as a Christian. That's true. In the same way that there's a sense in which I have to go home every day. But I don't have to go home. I don't feel this need to go home just because I have to. I go home because I love who's there. Right? And so in the same way, we ought to make it our custom to gather every Sunday, to come longing to hear the teaching, the preaching, the singing of the word and the fellowship of the word that is found in Christ. 
And so if it is not customary to you and you call yourself a Christian, then frankly, you're not being like Jesus. Because it was his custom to go and to hear the word and to sit under that word every single Sabbath day. Well, what happens next in the story? Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He comes to Nazareth. We see where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Stop for a moment there. Try to imagine, guys, the weight of this moment. Try to imagine the weight of this moment. Jesus, again, is a viral sensation. The famous hometown boy, he's come back home. He gathers for the ministry of the word there in the synagogue. And the Bible, as it were, is handed to him. You can imagine him sitting in this room. Jesus comes up. We just hand him the Bible. And we see that he takes the scroll, the word of God, and he flips around. And what he does, he looks for Isaiah, what we now know to be Isaiah chapter 61. That's what he's reading. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And then he reads it. Now, that passage that he reads there is a passage in reference to the Messiah that would come in and bring these good things that we read about. It would restore Israel's fortune. I'm sure that many Jews loved that passage, thought about that passage, dreamed about it. Jesus reads it. He slowly rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant. And then he slowly, leisurely walks to the side and he sits down. The way to this moment is palatable in the room. The eyes of all, the text says, the eyes of all were fixed on him. They're staring at him. What's he going to say? What's going to be a sermon? Right? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? It's hard to overestimate, friends, what comes out of his mouth next. Because what he says unequivocally answers your co-workers' questions as to who Jesus is. And not only does it answer who Jesus is, it answers who Jesus understood himself to be. Look at what he says in verse 21. Their eyes are fixed on him. He's read the text. He sits down. Everybody's looking at him. He's the viral sensation. Here he is. What's he going to say? Verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now you need to know that is a massive claim that he just made. A massive claim. He is not saying, Jesus is not saying that it's been fulfilled in terms of this, uh, like, he, like he got some, say, text message from somebody that morning. Hey, Rome has been overthrown. Israel's torches are overthrown. You're no longer captive. Rome's been overthrown. He didn't get a text message that morning, so he's telling them. That's not what happened. But what happened, what he seems to be saying here, is that he is the fulfillment of that passage. He understands himself to be the fulfillment of God's word. Today, on that day. Jesus understands himself to be the answer to this prophecy. Jesus understands himself to be the Messiah that preaches the good news to the, to the poor. And we're going to get into the content of the sermon in just a minute, but I want to make sure and understand for us what Luke is trying to help us see as to who Jesus is. When we look back and see how we've been presented, how Jesus has been presented to us, we see that Jesus was announced by the Savior. I'll remember that, that he is a Savior, that Christ is, circle that word, is the Lord. We've heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son. We've seen the genealogy to back that up. We've heard from the 12-year-old Jesus when he said that he was in the temple and he said he must be about his Father's business. We've seen him go into the wilderness and come out faithful. And now, as we hear him teach when he comes into the land, we hear from his own lips that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the fulfillment of Scripture, and so before we evaluate the content of Jesus' preaching, we need to evaluate the claim of Jesus in his preaching. And the claim of Jesus, again, is that he is the fulfillment. The answer to not only this passage, but we know from other passages that Jesus understands himself to be the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So think about this. So next Christmas, 2020, we'll be in Luke 24. All right, you can look forward to that. It'll be great. 
Luke 24, verse 44. And Jesus says this. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Like this moment in the synagogue. That everything written about who? What does he say? Written about me. And the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That language of law of prophets, law of Moses, prophets and Psalms, that's code language for the Old Testament. And he said it was written about me, me. And he goes on in that moment in Luke 24 to give the greatest Bible study in the history of the world. You want to talk about top five moments I would have liked to have been at in the Bible? There's one, right? Jesus, here it is. The whole Bible is about me. I'm just going to walk you through it. And so right out of the gate, we can see who Jesus is and who is he? He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And so this claim alone, friends, eliminates virtually all of those rival claims that I read in the beginning of this sermon. That claim alone eliminates all of those claims. He is not merely a prophet. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a man. Jesus is the anointed Messiah that fulfills the promises of God because he is the son of God. And God That's not only my words, those are Jesus' words himself. He says that. But how will the synagogue respond? Take a look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, guys, I don't think that he means, Luke means to be cynical in any way here. Luke wants us to see that Jesus' claim to fulfill Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is is marvelous, and his words are gracious, and of course they are, right? It is marvelous and gracious that Jesus has come. It is marvelous and it is gracious that we get to hear about this reality. Even today, some 2,000 years later, we get to hear that he is the fulfillment. Because just keep in mind, guys, there are tens of thousands Hundreds of thousands that have never heard that today. They've never heard that Jesus is the fulfillment. So it's a a marvelous and a gracious thing that us in this room, we get to hear that and know that it's true. So let's just pause and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We get to hear Jesus say it. This is marvelous. This is gracious. And like the text says, we too should speak well of it. We should we should to should tell other people about the fact that this is true because there are people in our city that have never heard this. That Jesus says this of himself. But you'll see there, I didn't quite finish reading the verse, rest of verse 22, did I? There's a sharp turn in the story. Take a look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote, this is Jesus speaking, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, this is actually the Israelites here, what you have heard, uh, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he, Jesus, said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Uh, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, what in the world's going on here? How did we move right from, oh, speaking well of this guy, marvelous, gracious words to filled with wrath, wanting to kill him? How did where? What's the. What's the shift? What happened there? Well, you can see the turn in verse 22. And that question, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, the synagogue is sort of like, ah, oh, good and gracious words. Our good old boy Jesus is back. What a nice guy. You of these nice good words about the poor and blind people. Ah, oh, so nice. But then one of them sort of says, but didn't he used to sit in this gathering? Isn't this just Joseph's boy? Eleazar, didn't he build that yoke that you use all the time? Isn't it him? He can't be this fulfillment, surely. 
Well, Jesus heard the question and he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. The question revealed something about his old neighbors. Namely, they didn't believe him. And they wanted him to perform a trick like a little dog. Go perform a trick for us, Jesus. Then we'll believe you. Do like you did in Capernaum. You know, heal somebody or something. Then we'll believe you. But as it is, you're just Joseph's boy. They didn't trust who Jesus was. And so Jesus says that famous saying, a prophet can't be a prophet in his own hometown. In other words, Jesus was so familiar to them. Don't lose sight of this. Jesus was so familiar to him that his true identity was hidden from them in plain sight. It was too easy to explain him away as Joseph's boy. A prophet can't be a prophet in his own hometown. Friends, I'm convinced that this is much of the reason behind the kind of post-Christian state that we find ourselves in here in the United States and in Western Europe and places like these. People are increasingly rejecting Jesus not because they've studied the gospel and found it wanting. It's because they grew up in Nazareth. It's because they are so familiar with Jesus and their friends are so familiar with Jesus that they just easily dismiss him. He's so familiar to so many that we just dismiss him altogether. We explain him away. Or, as it is increasingly said in our society, do some trick. If God would do some miracle, then I'll believe him. Same thing Nazareth would say. Same thing. Do you want to know where the fastest church is? The fastest growing church is in the world? Well, you know where that might be? It's in Iran. Iran is the fastest place the church is growing. And I wonder, how many people there grew up hearing about Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? Very, very few. Very, very few. So then the message of the gospel there in Iran, it came to those, we might say, outside of Nazareth. Jesus could be the kind of greater prophet in those towns because they didn't grow up hearing him in their towns. And so as a result, when it came, the the news had fresh and tender ears to hear the truth of Christ. And so a word to my skeptical friends that are here this morning. First off, so thankful that you're here. This is a safe place for your questions, your doubts, your concerns. We're glad you're here. But listen, be careful that you're not rejecting Jesus as Messiah, as the anointed Son of God, because you're from Nazareth. Be careful that you're not rejecting him because he's familiar to you. Be careful you're not rejecting Jesus because you're so familiar with him. Because the reality is, friend, he might be hidden from you in plain sight. Well, I haven't gotten really to the heart of the concerns of these Nazarenes. But note there, there's also more information Jesus gives in relation to these two stories. What we see is that they didn't like Jesus' response to their question about him being the son of Joseph. Not only because he said a prophet can't be a prophet in his own hometown, but also because of these two stories that he inserts in there. Every Israelite would have known these stories that Jesus was referencing. The story of Elijah comes from 1 Kings 17. And the story of Elisha comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. Which, by the way, makes clear that Jesus understood the Bible not as lore and as legend, but as authoritative. Here he is in three times already. He's quoting it, understanding it to be authoritative. But Jesus tells these stories because he wants them to see the tie to the Gentiles in these stories. Gentiles would be non-Jews. So Naaman was not a Jew and the woman in Sidon was not a Jew. Jesus is highlighting the fact that there were plenty of Israelites that were widows at the time. There are plenty of Israelites needing cleansing like Naaman at the time. But in those two instances, Jesus tells these stories. He highlights the fact that it wasn't Israelites that were cared for. They were passed over in favor of two Gentiles that believed. And that was the turn from Jesus as marvelous to Jesus as enemy. Verse 28, when they heard these things, the prophet, I can't be a whole prophet in his own hometown, and the fact that Jesus was referencing these two stories, when they heard those things, they were filled with wrath, it says. Jesus just accused his old neighbors of not believing in who he said he was. And so he said that as as it was before, so it was going to be then. Namely, that he's going to pass over those needy Jews in Nazareth in order to take the word, to take the good news of the kingdom to Gentiles that believe. 
And so these folks got angry, so angry at him that they tried to kill him. But since this was not the time for Jesus to die, he slips through the crowd and he gets out of there. But keep this clear in your minds because we're going to come back to it. These people only understood part of Jesus, not all of Jesus. They didn't believe his true identity. They liked part of his message, but they didn't like all of Jesus' message. And when he said hard things about their unbelief, when they were exposed for not believing who he really was, when words came out that condemned them, they moved from liking him to wanting to kill him. Now, friends, I've already said the United States is sort of like a Nazareth. Most of us grew, grew up hearing about Jesus, and there are many today that have constructed a kind of half-true Jesus, both, by the way, on the left and the right. And the second they hear something they don't like, they may not be able to throw Jesus off a cliff like they did back then, but today people may try to throw his people off cliffs when they say things that are true. But let's press on in the story. So far, we've seen two things. We've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, and that is marvelous. And secondly, we've seen that the people that are most familiar with him don't believe, don't trust him as that fulfillment. Instead, they want to try to destroy him. But take a look at what comes next. It is a surprising contrast, and I think Luke intentionally does that. Look at chapter 4, verse 31. So he slipped through the crowd. And in verse 31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Surprising response. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done no harm, him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on, our, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. I'm going to come back uh, in just a moment uh, and talk about sort of uh, uh, what we should learn from this. But again, let's just take a moment to contrast the demons with the city, the people in the city of Nazareth. Let's contrast the two. Verse 34, the unclean demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in verse 41, they say the demons also say, you are the son of God. And they knew that he was the Christ. He was Christ means Messiah or anointed one. They knew that he was the Messiah. Now, in both of those instances, Jesus responds quickly to keep that quiet. No. Right. And that perplexes probably a lot of you in the room. Right? Aren't we supposed to go out and spread the news? Nathan, did you even say that earlier? Well, there's a good reason why Jesus is saying that you have to be patient and keep coming back to get the answer. So you're not getting it now. Off we go. But we see here, unlike the residents of Nazareth, the demons actually see Jesus for who he is. They know and even believe that Jesus is who he said he is, but these demons are not interested in following him. In fact, they are trying to destroy people. You can see that there in verse 35, when demons throw this guy down. Guys, that's what evil, that's what demons do. In the name of good, they try to destroy people. They try to throw them down though they'll rarely do it like this by physically harming them. Oftentimes, they'll have you to believe lies. Regardless, these demons know who Jesus is and note the assumption in verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? So these demons not only know who Jesus is, as a result, they know what Jesus is capable of. They know that Jesus can smoke these dudes. They know it. They know it. And the second Jesus, get this, preaches to them, 
The moment he calls them out, they obey him because they must. And friend, so will the whole world one day. Whole world. The whole world will bow the knee to King Jesus. They must because he is the all authoritative king of the world. Verse 36, look at it. With authority, he commands unclean spirits and and it happens. They come out. Now, go back to those dudes in Nazareth with me for a moment. When Jesus made it clear that they don't believe, that they don't trust him as king, they get angry and even think that they're able to destroy Jesus. Whereas the demons, they know who Jesus is, and though they are much stronger than the residents of Nazareth, way stronger than them, yet they cower in fear of Jesus and his infinite might. And this provides us a good picture of our world, doesn't it? The supernatural, unseen realities in the world, they know the truth. Both angels and demons, both Satan and the Savior. And they know you don't mess with Jesus. They all know that. And yet people in the world that doubt Jesus think they can mess with Jesus. It is the pride and the unbelief of the residents of Nazareth that leads them to believe you can push Jesus around. And it is the rulers and the principalities unseen by the world that knows you better not. We see that in the story of Saul on the road to Damascus, don't we? He's going to persecute more Christians as an enemy of Jesus. And Jesus shows up and says to him, why do you mess with me? Right? You mess with Jesus' people, you mess with Jesus. And Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And God in his infinite grace, kindness, and should we add power, moves Saul from his greatest enemy to his greatest missionary. That's how strong he is. That's how beautiful he is. That's how gracious he is. That's how good he is. He can do that. Jesus can do that because he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's the son of God. He commands demons. Look at verse 39. He commands fevers. And yes, he commands us. This is who Jesus is. Nothing and no one can overpower him. He is anointed to bring good news. And that good news is coupled with the reality that diseases and demons must bow the knee to the sovereign king. Every one of them. To believe otherwise is to make Jesus your enemy. Even, by the way, if you say that he's marvelous and gracious. Like the people of Nazareth. You either take Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, or you don't take him at all. And friend, if you don't take him at all, then you, in essence, try and push him off the cliff. You try and destroy him, even if you call him friend. But rest assured, friend, that if you attempt to do that, if you try to attempt to topple the true and biblical Jesus, you will not succeed. This passage makes that crystal clear. He will slip through every single time and come out on top. Because he is stronger than the demons, he is stronger than diseases, and he's stronger than those that attempt to question him. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus the Christ is, the Son of God. He will have his way. Nothing and no one can get in that way. And so this is, again, made clear in this passage. He has all authority. And did you notice how he wields his authority? Did you catch it? How does Jesus wield that authority that is his? The power of the demons and diseases. How did he wield it? How did he enact it? Was it by brute strength? Did he go in and kind of mess things up? Get in line, all y'all. So what he did? Did he raise up an army like the Crusades of old? Let's go in and take this town over, folks. I'm the king. Is that what he did? How does he wield his authority? Right? He wields his authority by preaching. By preaching. Jesus wields his authority to use the words of Paul by thrashing the sword of the Spirit, the word of Christ, by preaching his word. When he preaches, his authority is wielded. You can see that in the final verses, even more in verses 42 to 44. Take a look at those. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. He's tired, right, dudes? Sorry, Jesus, more of a dude. He's the Lord. Yeah, the Lord is healing people. He's, you know, casting out demons. He's tired. So he pulls away to a desolate place to pray. And we find there. People sought him, they came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. 
And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Who is Jesus? He is the sovereign fulfillment of the one true and living God. And all of authority is his. You can deny him. You can even try to destroy him, but you will not win. And his kingdom advances by the proclamation of his word, through the preaching of his word. Beloved, this is our mighty king. This is our savior, the all authoritative one. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. And so if this is who Jesus is, and this is how we know that he advances his authority, what then does that mean for us? If this is who he is and this is how he wields his authority, what does that mean for us that are his? What does that mean for the world? And secondly, what happens when we actually give ourselves to him? Those are the kind of application questions that we'll finish up with. How do we not doubt Jesus like the Nazarenes or refuse Jesus like the demons? How do we come up under his authority, in other words? Or to say it more positively, how do we love Jesus? How do we follow Jesus as king and Lord, how do we know that we're doing that? How do we know that we not just not like this, the difference between the Nazarenes are like, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. He's the king. Marvelous and gracious words. And yet inwardly, our hearts want to destroy him. How do we know where we're at? Here's the answer this passage gives us. We gladly submit to all of his word. That's our answer. How do we know where we're at? How do we submit to this great and gracious Messiah? By gladly submitting to all of his words. Jesus rules not by force, but by the proclamation of his word. The agency of Christ's lordship is preaching and teaching the Bible, the word of Christ. Let me just show you that from this passage alone. I'll start at the end. Again, look at verse 43. Circle that word must. I must preach. The word there is caruso. By the way, that's where we get our notion of preaching. Carusoing, preaching would have been this, a monologue. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I was sent. He understands that part of his purpose in coming was to preach. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Look back at verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues. That's a different word. Didascoing. That's sort of like what we do in Titus 2 or discipleship. He taught in their synagogues. We see him read the word in verses 18 and 19. But notice the word in verse 21. You probably ran right past it. He reads the text, says this is scripture has been fulfilled. How did you catch it? In your what? Hearing. That's right. In your hearing, not in your seeing, in your hearing, right? In your hearing. He rules by the word. The word is through our hearings, not through sight. There he is. So now he rules through the proclamation of the word, through hearing. Then move on down. Look at verse 23 to 27 right there. There he's speaking the word uh, about uh, the, the, the word to the Nazarene, about Eli, uh, Naaman and the woman at Sidon. Then in verse 31 and 32, it says, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Verse 35, we see how he's ruling there. Verse 35, he rebukes and calls out the demon. We've already noted in verse 36 where they reference his word as being attended with power and authority. He rebukes the disease with he rebukes disease with his words. Verse thirty nine again, verse forty one, another rebuke. And then we get that encapsulation there in verses forty three and forty four. Friends, Jesus rules by preaching and teaching the word. And we know that we are following Jesus, not doubting Jesus, not rejecting Jesus like others. When we gladly submit to all of Jesus's words. Not just the ones we like, because remember, the Nazarenes, they like some of them. They're all about the marvelous and the gracious Jesus that sort of got some good news for Israel. It was the times when they saw things they didn't like that we really revealed whether or not they were submitting to him. You show you love Jesus. You show you follow Jesus by gladly submitting to all of Jesus' words because it is by submitting to his word, by preaching, by the preaching and teaching of the word as it comes and we, we respond gladly in submission to those words that we reveal that we've been changed by. We re- it reveals that we believe that he is king. We are his servant. We are his glad and happy servant. And we've been changed by his grace. Jesus even says as much in his high priestly prayer. John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in the truth. How do they get sanctification? By the truth. What's the truth? Your word is truth, he says. And maybe the most clear passage of all here in this, we might say, is... 
Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing. Remember that word that Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through what? Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. Word of Christ. So the word of Christ. Jesus enacts his authority, changes people for the proclamation of the word. Say, for instance, this would be a major difference between us and our Roman Catholic friends. You know, just to quote their own catechism. It says, quote, the grace of Christ is the sanctifying grace of baptism. Quote, the Lord's Supper is offered in reparation of sins for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church say that the acts of baptism and the ongoing eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper, they would say that's the grace of Christ. And of course, those are good things, important things to obey. But they believe that Jesus rules through the agencies of ordinances. And yet the clear reality in this passage is that Jesus rules through his word as it is faithfully and uh, expositionally called out and called the people to repent and believe upon it. The spirit sanctifies, Jesus said, the spirit sanctifies through the word, through the preaching and the teaching of the word. And that's exactly what Jesus said himself. By the way, that's normally what the difference is between a Protestant church and a Catholic church. You walk into a Protestant church building, you'll notice what's in the middle. It's a table. They're ruling by ordinances, taking the Lord's Supper. You walk into the middle of a Protestant church, normally a pulpit's in the middle, right? Through the preaching of the Word, it's the Word that is authoritative. That's what we understand, and we see that in the text itself. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if Jesus is your salvation, then you show that reality by your glad submission to all of Jesus' words. And one way you show that is by evidencing the fact that you customarily, you make it your custom, like Jesus, to come and gather with God's people and sit under the teaching, the praying, the singing of the word. And as you're regularly taught the word, as you read, you meditate, you speak the word to each other, this is how we grow up into him who is our head. This is how we grow in glad submission by Submitting ourselves to the whole counsel of the word of Christ. And notice I said the word glad. I realize it's not always very glad, right? But it's the posture of our heart. that we, I trust this word. I want to put myself under it because it's good. The reality is, friends, all of us, everybody on planet earth, believer and unbeliever alike, we all submit to the word. We all submit to, a, I should say, some kind of a word. Everybody on earth submits to some kind of word. That might be the word of the Republican or the Democratic Party. That might be the words of the New York Times or the Washington Post. That might be the words of some celebrity or some author. Or as is often the case, we often submit ourselves to our own words, don't we? I know I do. We're often tempted to believe that our words, whatever we think or feel or do, that, that's the thing we need to submit to. Right? That's the kind of zeitgeist of our cultural moment. And so the question is, are you submitting to the words of Christ, our Lord, our gracious and good Redeemer? You will know that not primarily by your confession, but by your practice of regularly sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the word of Christ as it is faithfully taught, gladly submitting into it, gladly coming under it. And secondly, lastly, what happens when we do that? What happens when we gladly submit to all of Jesus' kingly rule in his word? We've seen so far that he's the Messiah, he rules by his word. We know that we are in Christ when we're gladly submitting to all his word. But what happens? Fourth and last thing. What happens when we do that? Verse 18. When Jesus preaches, when he proclaims the word, we see there in that passage. Look what happens. Good news comes to the poor. Liberty comes to the captives. Recovering of sight comes to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor moves in. When we give ourselves to it, that's the kind of stuff that comes rising up. Right? All these good things. And I do, be, I do believe, by the way, that, the, that, that what Jesus means primarily is spiritual fulfillment of these things. Spiritual fulfillment of these things, mainly. The referencing the spiritual realm. Although I do believe the spiritual is previewed in the miraculous healings, right? We've seen this already, and we're going to see it more. Jesus is constantly going to the poor. He's constantly speaking to those that are blind and the like. But ultimately, these words are grounded in the fact that the words of Christ bring spiritual renewal, spiritual freedom. But from time to time, we do see Jesus' physical healing, and those physical healings, uh, healings are pointing to a deeper reality of spiritual life and spiritual freedom. 
Those physical mirrors are windows into a future reality where the restoration of all things will occur, where the physical and the spiritual will come together and it will all be free. Right? That's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 8. Go read that this afternoon. You'll see it all come together there. But here in the immediacy, Jesus is addressing a, a reality deeper than the physical. He's referencing the hearts of men. His words are good news to the poor. Good news, that is, to those that are poor, even in spirit. I think we see that in this passage right here. Naaman was a very wealthy guy. He had a lot of money. He was not poor. And yet he is a good example of those that are poor, poor in spirit, because he renounces all of his pride and gives himself to the words of Elisha the prophet. And because he does, he's cleansed. So good news comes to those that understand their souls to be not wealthy, but poor, weak, Dead even, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, unable to perform righteousness and needy for Christ to perform it for them. His preaching is good news to souls because, right, it was by the blood of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection that Jesus, the sovereign Lord and master, lays his life down to liberate us from our captivity to sin. And so what he does as a result of what Christ has done for those that believe, he then sets us free. He gives us sight to see the beauty of Jesus, the glory that we're intended to have. He liberates us from oppression. That is the bruising that sinful choices create. And he leads us into the Lord's favor. Jesus says he must preach this. He was compelled to preach the reality that he, the Lord and master, he, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the faithful son of God would pay our penalty on the cross. That is, would become a captive so that we could be liberated. He was compelled to preach in order to make known that he would make himself blind so that we could see. He would allow himself to be oppressed so that we no longer would have to be oppressed. He would forsake the favor. Get this. He would forsake the favor of the father so that we might know the favor of the father now and always. Amen. This is what Jesus preaches. This is what Jesus accomplishes in the gospel. Don't lose sight of this. He uses his authority not to protect himself. But to liberate his people who day after day, don't we try to throw him off a cliff. And our sin. And yet he was willing to go and throw himself off the cliff so that we wouldn't have to be. When we submit ourselves to Christ by gladly submitting ourselves to the word, what do we get? Liberty. Freedom. Freedom is so not the way this book is often presented. And quite frankly, there's been a lot of preachers that have done it poorly, haven't they? This book is a book of freedom, of joy when we give ourselves to it. And so as a result, I am personally Weary and tired of all the lies that I believe, I think will get me liberty when they're out of accord with God's good word. I get weary and tired. I'm believing that again. I did that again. It's not true. It wasn't. I get tired of that. I get tired of it for you because I love you as your pastor. That you believe and are wearied by all of these lies and you give yourself to them. Freedom, friends, is not found in personal autonomy. It's not. Freedom is not found in self-expression. Freedom is not found in breaking off the chains that bind us. All of those things are the things that got us into the mess that we're already in. Freedom is found in being bound by the word of Christ. He has come to liberate us as our savior. And all those that give ourselves to the truth of his word, they will testify to the truth of that reality. I can testify that to you. The more I give myself to his word, the more I see the lies I believe are out there and in here. And the more freedom I find in Jesus. And Jesus says, him, says this himself in John eight thirty one and 32. If you abide in my word, notice what he calls the word, mine, my word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Set you, say free, free, set you free. free. That's what it does. Thank you. It's free. It sets you free from your change to sin of believing lies. And so friends, if you want to know freedom, then abide in all of Jesus' word. You will then know the truth, and that truth, the word of Christ, will set you free. It'll set you free from your guilt and shame. It'll set you free from maybe the disappointments uh, that you have of your boss or your parents, or whatever the case may be. And so do you want to be uh, even liberated from the relentless race of trying to be somebody or something? And you're just constantly beat down by that. Submit yourself to the word of Christ and be free. Most importantly, do you want to be liberated from the guilt of your sin? Oh, look to Jesus. 
Abide in his word, all of it. Submit yourself to it and find freedom. You can find it in nowhere else because he is the all authoritative king. He is the revelation of the son of God. He is the person of the second person of the Trinity that comes to manifest God to us. And so you can see, look at verse 42. You can see why people sought him. Like the creation of old Jesus speaks and the people are recreated and it is very good. And by the way, that's still true today. Still true today. This happens every single week. When we preach the word, somebody will come up and say, they won't use these words, but they'll say something to the effect of, I've been liberated. I've been free. I needed to hear that. People are being changed. All of you, think about it today, Sunday morning, just in Washington, D.C. alone, as the word is faithfully taught, people are, and, and believed and submitted to, people are being liberated, free. He is the sovereign Lord and all authoritative king, the son of God, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. How does he enact that rule? By the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, the gospel that he became captive so that we might be liberated. How is it we respond? By gladly submitting ourselves to all of his word. What happens? Liberation. Freedom. Recovery of sight to the blind. This is the teaching of this passage. This is the truth of the gospel. Which reminds me as I close the words from last week. Satan tempts Jesus, doesn't he? And we're tempted every single week, every single day. And how does Jesus defeat the evil one? How does he find freedom? By quoting the word, submitting himself not to the words of Satan, not even to his own desires to have bread to eat in that moment, which he would have had. But instead he submits himself to the word. And because he does, glory comes. Right? And so... The final words I was thinking about this morning. Jesus in John chapter 6, he teaches that you must go to him to find life and liberation. And all the people leave. John six sixty six. All the people leave. And Jesus looks at his disciples and what does he say? Will you leave me also? And what does Peter say? Exactly what we see in this passage. To whom would we go? To what other word would we go? To what other king would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we're not going to go anywhere else, Jesus. We're going to go to you, even if that means death or suffering. Because you're worthy. You are the all-authoritative king that brings life, that breaks us free from our oppression to sin and guilt, and brings us into the glory of the Father forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You are the Messiah. You have fulfilled all of God's promises. You are the son of God. And when you speak, life comes. Evil flees, life comes. And so, God, may we give ourselves gladly to all of your word. And may we experience the joy, the freedom that is found in you, the word. We pray this in your name. Amen.